Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it's such a joy um, to see you all, to be able to worship together this morning with you. We're so thankful for the opportunity um, to be together. This is uh, my first opportunity to be with you in the new year, and so I just want to say Happy New Year to you. We're so glad um, that you're with us, and I also want to take a moment just to uh, thank uh, Brother Don uh, Wagner for his great word uh, to you last weekend if you were here on New Year's day uh, from Philippians chapter 2. If you'd ever like to go back to just hear any messages, whether it's some uh, previous during our Advent season or or catch up with us in our study in the book of Acts, wherever you find a podcast, you can go and find that and catch up with us. And as I was preparing for this weekend, again, my first uh, weekend to be together with our family um, of the new year, I really wrestled with uh, what the Lord um, would just have me um, study and preach. Um, We are going to get back to our study in the book of Acts. If you've been with us for a while, uh, we took a break for that for our Advent season, and right after next weekend, our Disciple Now weekend, in two weeks, we'll return uh, to the book of Acts. But uh, for this first uh, Sunday of of my new year, um, what what, what is it that the Lord would have have me um, speak, and what text should we use? Um, As we step into this new year, um, part of what I was wrestling with was um, just some of the realities that I see as I look around um, both in my personal life, in our family, in our church family, um, and then even all around within the culture, within the broader world. Um, one of the realities that I sense is, is that 2024, with all of the expectations that a new year can bring, um, it's probably going to be a pretty challenging year. There's a lot of hard things that we face. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but it's an election year. Um, We do really good at tearing ourselves apart during that season. And remember when those used to be filled with hope? Um, It's anything but that. It's challenging. Um, I expect it's probably going to be pretty ugly as it has been for some season. Our economy Some of you have faced this economic situation is uncertain. What's going to happen with interest rates? What sort of things, what does the future hold? Um, Within our church even, just here more locally, there's so much to rejoice over. I look around this room and I look at all of your faces, so many new faces, so many faces that have been here for a really long time and a really sweet balance of the both of those things. But there's so many challenges, so many challenges in terms of space. Why would God bring all of these people to this church that so many so that we have to close down our little space because some of you are having to hold babies this morning because we just ran out of room. Um, by the way, I do commend our 8 a.m. service to you. There's plenty of space at that hour. Um, there's many challenges that come our way, um, many things that I'm unsure of. Um, our staff is so lean um, that we are struggling to keep up with all the needs of caring for this body and doing it well. Uh, financially, our church is very healthy, and yet, um, as we look around and we consider all the things that are in front of us, we don't really have enough money to do anything about it. <laughs> and so what are we supposed to do? More personally, our youngest son will launch this next spring. What does that mean? Laurel, first of all, is going to have to learn what to do with just me around. I'm sure there are many things that cause your heart while there's excitement about the new year. Um, If you're like me, there's so much uncertain things, so many things that we aren't sure about, so many questions and so many doubts, so many hard things that might be coming our way. All that to say, this new year, as we step into it, seems to me to be very uncertain. And in God's providence, though, he led me to a text that I believe speaks directly to what we are talking about. 
This week has been a short week. Obviously, had the first day of the week off on uh, holiday, um, and then there was a lot packed into this week in terms of other gatherings. And I spent most of Thursday with our elders and with our trustees praying and trying to discuss and discern what is next for our church family. And it brought again some of that uncertainty to mind. But late in the night, God brought me to a text. Um, that I remembered, by the way, from our men's Bible study. Some of you men, we have been gathering, or about a year ago, we were working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you've been with us, you'll remember 1 Samuel chapter 23. But the Lord brought that story to mind. And I do believe that it speaks directly to that heart of uncertainty and where we can look a certain truth in very uncertain times. And so if you're able, would you please stand out of reverence for God's word as I read from 1 Samuel Chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he, was, he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Calah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Father God, we thank you for your word, a word that as we read it may seem and is historically distant from us and yet is alive and can speak truth to our hearts even today. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story from David's life that can encourage us and can point us to you and can remind us what it is that we're called to be, who we are called to be, and how we can follow you. So help us now, we pray, by the power of your spirit to hear from you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. 
Now, a little background on this text. Again, the men of our Bible study, by the way, men's Bible study, women's Bible studies will all return this week. And so 6 a.m., men, be here on Tuesday morning. We'll be studying the book of John. There'll be a men's Bible study on Thursday evening, women's Bible studies on Tuesdays and Wednesdays as well. And so I encourage you to join in on those opportunities. But a little background on this text. Um, David has been anointed as king. Prior to this story, David had been anointed as king, but Saul was still the king. Saul was the first king that was given to the Israelites. He failed at his duties, and much of 1 Samuel, really the entirety of this book, is a sense contrasting Saul as king as opposed to David, a man after God's own heart and how they led. And so because David has been anointed as king, God has lifted his hand from Saul and taken him away, taken his rule and reign away from him. Now Saul wants to kill David. He just wants to destroy David because he's threatened by him. He's jealous of him, and so he wants to do that. David has fled and is hiding in caves and in the wilderness. Even as we end this chapter, he returns to the wilderness. He's in this place of hiding trying to guard his life. He does not want to be someone who would come against the hand of God and so, or to come against the, the, the man anointed by God. And so he's not going to kill Saul himself. He will wait for the Lord until the Lord makes it clear that David is to rise and take the throne. And so David is on the run. And he hears just a few miles away about this city called Kela where the Philistines are besieging it. It's We know from the text where it talks about the threshing floor that this is shortly after the harvest season. And so the Philistines have essentially come to this city to rob the city of their harvest. Ultimately, the city would starve to death, perhaps be killed by the Philistines. And David decides that he must go down. The Philistines attacking them, David believes that he is called to go and take care of them and to guard them and to take down the Philistines. Which brings us to the first lesson of this text. So often we ask the question, what am I here for? What am I doing with my life? Why has God placed me here? Maybe you don't think about that often, but in some way or another, you ultimately ask that question. What are we doing here? What am I here for? You've heard me say very often, if you've been a part of our church for any season of time, that we are here because God has sovereignly placed us here. Um, Many of you came to this community, to this city, to this area because you felt like you wanted to find a house that you really liked. No, that was just the tool that God used because God intended that you would be here. In God's sovereignty, he brought you here. Some of you came here because you heard the schools were great. You looked at that athletic facility and you said, I got to be a part of that. No, you think that's why you came here, but it's ultimately because God sovereignly brought you here. You are here because God has said that you will be here. The interesting thing about this is that Kela was not of any, technically was not of any David's concern. The Philistines attacking this city would have ultimately been the responsibility of Saul. It was an Israelite city, and so the protection of those cities was ultimately the responsibility of the king. And David, while he's been anointed, he has not been installed as king. And so it really wasn't his problem, and yet he felt compelled to do something about it. We can know that there's some doubt about this calling because David's men, they say that they are afraid. Look at verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kela against the armies of the Philistines? They're saying to David, Hey, man, I get it. You're a powerful warrior. You love a good fight. But I don't know if this fight is ours. They want to caution him. But David has asked the Lord, and so he responds as the Lord affirms and says, yes, you are to go. God says, and the Lord said to David, verse 2, or excuse me, the beginning of, uh, or the end of verse (laughs) 2, go and attack the Philistines and save Kalah. We have been sent here. 
You are here to preserve the life of the people around you. God has brought you here in his sovereign plan. If you want to know why we are here, it's because God has said that we are here. And how can we know that? If we look at the New Testament, we can go to the Sermon on the Mount. A few years ago, we preached an entire sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. But you'll remember these words, words that are powerful words and a great reminder of who we are called to be. You, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt is a preservative. We have been sent here, Jesus says, to preserve the life of those people that we are in community with that are surrounding us. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have been sent here to be salt and light in the same way that David understood his responsibility in spite of the fact that it was technically not his problem, he was sent, and we too have been sent here for a purpose. Your neighbors, your family, the community that we live in, They are our responsibility, a responsibility that we have to be salt and light to the world that desperately needs it. We could all pretty easily say, as David's men, out of fear, out of anxiousness, probably said, we don't really need to do that. That's not our job. I don't really need to love my neighbor like that. That's somebody else will take care of that. I don't really need to handle that situation. I don't need to step into that situation. Surely somebody else will kind of deal with that. Somebody else will love them. Somebody else will provide for them. Somebody else will do that job. It's not for me to do. We can all sort of fall into that trap. Pastor Ryan, you've said since the beginning of this church, I've been here for 10 years, and you said over and over and over again, God is sovereign. So if God is sovereign, he'll send somebody else. Here's the reality, friends. Yes, in God's sovereignty, he has sent someone, and he sent us here to bring glory to his name. He sent us to be salt and light in this world. Now, David understands that God has given him a responsibility, and so he goes But lest we think that this chapter of the Bible is all about a battle between David's army and the Philistines, you know how many verses God gave to that? One. Verse five. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. God had sent David there. He had said he had given the Philistines into his hand and he went there as a demonstration of God's power and wiped them out so much so that he took their livestock and saved them. But it is only given one verse. Because the primary emphasis of this passage is not the battle between David and the Philistines. The emphasis of this passage is what does David do when he finds himself in uncertain and very precarious and challenging situations? That's what God is teaching us through this text. And so, David, after winning this battle, sees Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, who comes to meet David. He had been separated from David previously, and so he arrives in Calah in verse 6. And ultimately, right after that, Saul also gets word. Not only was Abiathar made aware that David had gone to Calah, but Saul also realizes that he's gone to this city. And so Saul believes 
look, David has sent, gone to Kayla. It's a city that is surrounded by walls and gates, which means there's no easy escape. It's a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. God has given David into my hands. I will go and I'll kill him here. The next question that we can ask ourselves and that is answered from this is, who will you look to? Who will you look to? Abiathar was the high priest, and the high priest followed David and was there to support David to tell him the word of God, to speak God's wisdom to him. And you notice that it says that Abiathar came, and he brought with him the ephod. Now, the ephod, it's a bit of a strange word, but it's something that was uh, talked about all the way back in Exodus, that God gave his people the ephod. The Israelites had the ephod, and it was their tool. It was their mechanism to discern the will of God, to ask God a question. And so they used the ephod, and they were doing this with, according to the instructions given in the Torah, to seek God. And so they... David summons him and wants to ask God a question. But before we get there, who will you look to? Now, it's only been a few minutes. And you slept through the 8 a.m. service, so you're wide awake, and I know you'll remember this. Who sent David to Kayla? God. God sent David into this uncertain situation, this precarious situation, this vulnerable situation that was so vulnerable that everyone, Saul himself, realized this is the place where David has been given into my hand. Saul believes that he's still operating with God's favor, and he says, David is trapped. I can go and I can kill him now. So you're telling me that God sent David into a place where his life would surely be at stake. That's right. That's the point of this text. God sent David to a place where he could be easily attacked, where he was vulnerable, where his situation was not good. God sent him to a place where he could not do anything but rely upon the Lord, where he had to, as we just sang, wait for the Lord. That's what God did. You see, the difference between Saul and David as we contrast them is that Saul looked only at the circumstances. According to his earthly eyes, his temporal eyes, he could see the situation at hand. David is trapped in a city that is easily attacked. I've got an army that will take it down. I will kill David. Everything that he looked at said, that's exactly what the situation is. But David didn't look just at the circumstances. No, David looked to God. He turned to God. That's why he called Abiathar and says, bring the ephod here. And David, it says, inquired again of the Lord. He inquired again of the Lord. He wants to know, what am I to do? David didn't look simply at the circumstances. He looked at God. Your circumstances may look bleak. You may look around your life and see all sorts of challenges. You may feel like you're in a very vulnerable situation. You may feel as if the circumstances have overwhelmed you. When we ask ourselves the question, who will we look to? Will we look at our circumstances alone? Or will we allow our circumstances to drive us to seek the face of God? That is who we are called to be. And we have a perfect model, not just in David of this, but we have a perfect model in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 22, recording the last few hours of Jesus' life. 
Jesus goes into the garden, that familiar place, and it says that Jesus prayed. And in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus found himself in a place of complete vulnerability where his life would be actually taken. His earthly life would be coming to an end. And as he is facing the uncertainty of the situation, the bleakness of that situation, what does he do? He is driven to seek the Father's will, and he gets on his knees, and he prays. And he prays so fervently that ultimately drops of blood fell from his brow. He sought the face of God. In the uncertain situation, he didn't just look at all of the circumstances around him. He didn't use the power that was available to him to just sort of squash it down and kill all of the Romans that were going to come against him or to completely turn. No, he says, I will seek the face of God and not my will, but yours be done, Father. That's what he asked. And so we, when we face the uncertainty of so many questions and so many doubts and so many challenges and so many frustrations and perhaps pain and real grief and real hardships, what that God is doing that is he is driving us to say, seek after me. Who will we look to? Will we simply look with our eyes or will we turn our face to God? Which leads us to the next question. What will we do? What do we do? David, it says, understood what was happening. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. Somehow that word got to him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David seeks the face of the Lord. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me unto his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. He prays, and he asks God, and God ultimately says, yes, I brought you here. You did what I told you to do, and now I'm going to give you into the hand, or these people will ultimately come for you. David, knowing that Saul was coming for him, did what only he could do, which was to ultimately, immediately flee the city. Again, he had come to this city to bring life to this city. He now flees the city so that life might be preserved. Saul wanted death for everyone. He was killed, David, and those people who had taken him in. This is why the people of Calah would be so quick to turn David over because they understood maybe if they turned David over to Saul, he wouldn't wipe them out. But ultimately, he more than likely would have wiped them out. And David, he wanted life, not death. And so he did whatever he had to to preserve the life of the people that he was caring for. You see, when we're driven by our circumstances and we don't look to the Lord, we ultimately most often do the wrong thing, don't we? We look at whatever we can see with our eyes and we say, I'm gonna do this or that. We get ahead of the Lord. We try to do things under our own strength. We try to do things in the wisdom of our flesh rather than seeking the Lord. But when we seek the Lord, we do the thing that brings life. We do things in the wisdom of God. We do things rooted in love and in grace. And so when we face uncertain times, we can't find ourselves trying to respond to every circumstance in the flesh, but no, let it drive us to seek the face of God. Which leads us to the final point, which is the hope that we can have in this world. What ultimately will God do? What will God do? See, God sent David to save these people in Calah. 
And by doing that, God sent David into a place of complete weakness. God sent him to a place where he would have no other choice but to seek him. I told you that our elders spent quite a bit of time together on Thursday. We talked about all of the challenges of the uncertainty of trying to care for this body, this church. Talked about the reality that our little's room gets shut down so often in the 9.30 hour because there's so many babies here. Why has God brought us to a place and done such miraculous things and powerful things in this place? And why is he drawing you all here to build this body up and then yet not giving us the answer of how we're supposed to care well for you, how we're supposed to provide for you, how we're supposed to make space for you? Do you want to know why? I know why. So we would seek his face and that he would get all the glory. Whatever the situation in your life that seems uncertain, that has caused you to doubt, he has put you there primarily not because he doesn't love you, not because he wants to harm you, not because he isn't going to preserve your life, but because he wants you to find your life and in him and in him alone. That's why you find yourself in that situation. And I love the beauty of God's word preserved for us, which declares the miraculous nature of what we have in our hands when we hold our Bibles. Psalm 63, most scholars believe, was written in that wilderness of Kith that David and his army fled to right after this situation in Calah. If you want to turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 63, these are the words of David immediately following God putting him in a situation where he was vulnerable and where his life was ultimately hanging in the balance. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, more than likely David looked upon a desert with thirst, a human thirst, a physical thirst. And he said, this is the spiritual condition. My soul thirsts for you, God. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David worships God and declares his deepest desires to seek after him. Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy me, Saul and his army, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What will God do? He will come and answer us when we seek him. This is what David declares. In the midst of the wilderness where his life is still hanging in the balance, he says, I will praise God and I long for him. Do you notice there's not anything in that text about the specific specific circumstances of David's life? He doesn't complain to God about being in the wilderness. He doesn't complain to God about leading him into this, this city, telling him to go save him, only to find them come to try and kill him, and that really revealed us. He doesn't complain or get frustrated. He worships God in the midst of it. And I love this emphasis. Go back again to verse 5. 
David, in the midst of the wilderness, because of his understanding of who God is, can say these words, my soul will be satisfied. I long for you, God. I desire you alone, and my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. He can see the sustenance of God coming from him. My mouth will praise your joyful, you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David, in the worst of circumstances, longs for God, seeks after God, and then holds on to the assurances of his promise. He will sustain him. He will provide him. That is what our God does. That's a certain truth that you can build your life upon in whatever the uncertainty of the times you might face. Whatever challenges you may be facing, we can know that we will be satisfied. And we know that because we have a Savior who has secured for us eternal life. And our hope is in him. That's what we're going to sing about as we close our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that our life has been secured by you and for you. Help us, we pray in the year ahead, to not be a people who look to our circumstances, but look to you. As we face uncertain times and challenging situations, whether they're personally in our own lives, whether it's our church family, whether it's the the challenges of just the broader world, help us to seek after you. May we be a people like David who long for you, God. And give us the hope this morning that says, We will rejoice. We will sing with joy. We will be satisfied in you alone. We pray all these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa. For the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh,